continue our study, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that tells us about Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin so we can see our great need and the Holy Spirit that gives us hope, the gift of hope that we might trust in you, the gift of faith that we might find eternal life. Lord, this morning I pray that we would be built up in our faith by the word of God, edified, equipped for every good work, especially during this Christmas season, that we would be mindful of the opportunities to speak peace into people's lives, to speak the truth in love. And Lord, I pray for those who are here, Lord, we don't know hearts you do. They do not know you as Savior. Lord, that they might find hope in you, that you might draw them to yourself even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Message is entitled, The Gift of Christmas. There's something special about this Christmas season. A lot of it isn't biblical. It's nice. It's nice that people, well, we say they treat one another, and then you see those things that happen on Black Friday. Fights over PlayStations or whatever they were hoping to get the last deal on. A lot of what goes on in this season in the name of Christmas has nothing to do with Christmas at all. You know that. The, this this uh, Christmas season, this time of the year was also celebrated by the Romans as the worship of Saturnalius, and which had to do with a lot of drinking and partying, and thus we have that go on too. In fact, the Puritans wouldn't celebrate Christmas because of that. For them, it was just the birth of Christ. A lot of made a lot of made a, a lot of deals about how Jesus wasn't born in December. I believe he probably was. Um, the one Jewish theologian, Alfred Eidersheim, looks at the the courses of priests that um, Zachariah served in, and the birth of John the Baptist, and we believe, according to that, that Jesus was probably born in December. And say, well, how come the shepherds were out in the fields? Well, they were taking care of sacrificial lambs, which is quite a picture if you think about it. But a lot that goes on in the name of Christmas has nothing to do with Christmas. There's going to be another time when men give gifts to one another. In the book of Revelation, you'll read when those two prophets are finally killed, the ones that keep prophesying turn to God, and then they do signs and wonders, and they bring great devastation on the earth. And finally, the Antichrist is able to overcome them and kill them, and they are so excited. They're so excited these two prophets of God are dead that men give gifts to one another. They celebrate Christmas. I don't know if it's in December or when that happens, but they're going to celebrate because these two prophets are dead. Why do we give gifts to one another as Christians? Well, we do it because in memory of the great gift that was given to us. Second Corinthians chapter 9, we talk about all these offerings that we take at Christmas time for, for children that are needy, for our missionaries, 
So the gospel got around the world. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the last verse, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's good to give gifts at Christmas. But we don't want to forget what Christmas is about, and especially we as believers, we have this opportunity to ask those questions, to see those open doors, to give glory to God. Maybe it's just a word. Maybe for some people it's just saying Merry Christmas and remembering that He's the reason for this season. But the great gift wasn't just something to make us feel better. The gift of Christmas is our only hope. One of my favorite Christmas movies is The Polar Express. And as a theologian, I see all kinds of meanings in there. The author never intended. I see the Holy Spirit in there. And, you know, there's a lot of things. It doesn't mention God. But at the end, when the little fella gets the first gift of Christmas, he bends over and he says to him, this is just a symbol of the true meaning of Christmas, as am I. But then he gets it wrong. The true meaning of Christmas lies inside of you. No, it doesn't. The true meaning of Christmas is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the true meaning of Christmas. And while we're not going to talk as much about his birth today, John said in John 1.29, when he sees Jesus coming the next day, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The gift of Christmas is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In verses 1 through 4, we see the need for a better sacrifice. These people in the book of Hebrews that the writer is writing to are having a hard time leaving the old covenant, leaving the sacrifices, leaving the idea. Now, they weren't living in Jerusalem, so they probably were not being obedient, which most people weren't that day. The law required that every adult male from Every adult male that was bar mitzvahed from 13 up present himself before the Lord three times a year. We mentioned this before, but when we were in Israel, there's a film, and it says, well, going up to the temple for many was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That was disobedience, wasn't it? But certainly for those that lived far away, they couldn't go, but they still had a hard time letting go like some people today. They've grown up in liturgical dead religion, but it's what my father and my grandfather and my people before me were a part of it, so it's hard to let go. So many people in the world, even worshiping not Christian denominations, but in false denominations, they say, well, I don't believe that. It's just kind of my family thing, so we have to hold on to it. These people were caught by the same traditions. And so the writer of Hebrew writes to them, and he says, listen, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come. Paul writes in Galatians, says it was just a teacher to bring you to God. It was just a picture to give you an idea of what God had in mind, what he was going to do. It's a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the temple or the tabernacle. There's the candles, and there's the table of showbread, and there's the incense, but basically it was a slaughterhouse, was it not? It was a slaughterhouse. 
Because every day throughout the year, and especially at Passover time, and at Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, thousands of animals are sacrificed. We talked about it before. Now we have, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? It means when you as a believer come to God and you identify your sin, you don't come to God. Biblically, you shouldn't say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Hopefully you are sorry for your sin. But you identify that which the Holy Spirit's pointed out that you know is wrong. You say, God, that is sin. I agree with you. That's confession. I agree with God that that is sin. The Bible says we belong to him. We have his Holy Spirit. We agree with him. He cleanses us. He cleanses us, not us. We identify the sin, and he sets us on a straight path. Now, Paul write, or, or John writes, goes on in the next chapter, little shall I write these things to you that you sin not. But if you may sin, remember, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Do you sin as a believer? Yes, you sin. And every time you sin, you confess your sin, and God never gets tired of hearing from us. That's amazing grace. Amazing grace. Now, what happens every time you realize he's forgiven you? If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, your love for him grows. That he can keep forgiving you. How does he do that? On the basis of this once for all time sacrifice that he made. That's why Peter wrote and he said, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by precious blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. How much is it valued? Its worth is enough to pay for all the sins of all the people that ever lived. But it is only proficient in those that turn to Christ and by the gift of faith put their trust in Him. He goes on to say, otherwise, if those sacrifices would actually have changed people's hearts, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers have been cleansed, would no longer have a conscience of sin. Wouldn't they, those, off, those offerings cease to be offered? If they did the job, you wouldn't have to go back to the temple. You wouldn't have to go back to the tabernacle. You wouldn't have to go have another sacrifice because you would be cleansed. It'd be done. And maybe some of those on the edge were having a hard time with that, but that's because they were devaluing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. John MacArthur says this, suppose you get sick, this is a great illustration, and the doctor gives you a prescription. You get it filled and start taking the medication. If it works, every time you look at the bottle, you are happy and reminded that you are cured and the sickness is gone. But if it does not work, every time you look at the bottle, it reminds you that that medicine is ineffective and that you are still sick. It may sometimes give relief from the symptoms, but it does nothing to cure the disease. A person who must take medication to stay alive cannot be said to be cured. And that was the problem with, the, with the, the sacrifice of the bulls and the goats and the sheep and all that took place before. It was a t covering. 
It was a temporary remedy, but it did nothing to change the heart of man. Didn't change him. We today as believers, we come no matter what our sin is, we read the word of God, we accept that once for all sacrifice for ourselves, and when we could gather around the communion table today, it's a remembrance of that. It's not to get some more of it. That is done. It's done. The old sacrifices and ceremonies had somewhat the same effect on Israel. Instead of removing our sins, they only gave temporary relief and were a constant reminder that their sins were still there. Another year, another lamb, another sacrifice, and the sins were still there. In verses 5 through 9, we see the provision of a better sacrifice. Therefore, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now after saying the above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin... You have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first order in, in order to establish the second. Now, how did Jesus take away the first order? By fulfilling it. He's the only one that could fulfill all the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. The reason the scribes and the Pharisees and those false teachers that were there in Israel, the reason they had so much trouble with him, because he was pointing out they were, their teaching was ineffective and it was false. It was false. What happened to them? They, they knew they couldn't keep the law, so they just made other laws. And they thought even though they broke the law, as long as they knew the law, they were better than all the other people around them. And Jesus said about them, they make burdens that others can't bear, and they don't even try to lift them with their finger. Through his life, and that's important, it's not just through his death. Jesus came into the world, prophesied by the old, the old prophets in the Old Testament, recognized and worshipped by Gentile kingmakers, the Magi, and recognized by Simeon and Anna in the temple. He lived with his family. He was surrounded, very close fellowship with his disciples. He lived before the people in miracles and in teaching the Word of God. You see, every lamb that was going to be sacrificed had to first be tested and even the Gentile governor, Pilate, examined Jesus and said, I find no fault in him. He's the lamb without blemish. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has taken away the first covenant and established the second. The readers of this epistle called Hebrews would get the message, why go back to a covenant that's been taken away? Why go back to sacrifices that are inferior Verse 10, we see the effectiveness of a better covenant. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, listen to this, once for 
all. Once for all. If you come from a church that believes that maybe you ought to be taking the blood of Christ every week for salvation, you have to ask yourself, well, what's the point? What is the point of that? The salvation has been completed. The sacrifice was completed. What we have today is a memorial service that Jesus commanded. It's important for us to remember. He said, every time you eat the bread, every time you drink the cup, remember Everything you have, everything you are, is because of Jesus' sacrifice, not because of your works. And he laid his life down. He said, no man takes it from me, John 10. I lay it down on my own accord. I'll take it up again. He died to set aside the old covenant. What did that look like? There was a point in time when it actually happened. You know that? Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus is on the cross. He's been hanging there since 9 o'clock in the morning. At the sixth hour, noon, all of a sudden, the world goes dark. The Father is turning his back on his Son. The thing that Jesus was most filled with fear about was the separation. That which, as a believer, you will never experience Even as an unbeliever today, you have yet to experience that separation from God, total separation from God. You're living apart from God today if you're not a believer, but you haven't experienced separation. That's what hell is. It's total separation from God. Every every human being that lives on this earth, no matter what suffering you go through, experiences a measure of the mercy and the love of God. But one day, if you continue in your sin, you say, well, no, I think I can handle it. I'm going to go a little longer, and you die without Christ then you, saw, you experienced what Jesus experienced on the cross. And that was the father turning his back on the son. And he cried out in anguish, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why had God forsaken him? Because 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin. He knew no sin, but he became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amazing grace. He became sin. We sang. We, we, he became sin that knew no sin. That we might become his righteousness. Philippians 2 said, he was God. And he did not feel his Godness something he had to grasp onto. But he came to earth and submitted. Took upon him flesh. And submitted himself, humbled himself, even unto the death of the cross. He died a sinner's death, but he was not a sinner. So what happened? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, Matthew 27, 50. And at that moment, verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. See, that was the victory. That was the victory. Sometimes we think of Jesus' death as the defeat. It was not the defeat. He was not killed by the Romans. The other two were still alive. Sometimes men would hang for days on the cross. But because of the Passover, they didn't want trouble, so they said, go break the other two's legs. They came to Jesus. He was already gone. Why? Because he dismissed his spirit. 
I wonder what it was like in the temple. The glory had departed way before. The glory was never there in the temple of Herod. But they were going on in the idea that it was. But that which separated man from God, the way was now open. Access. That's what our heart desires is fellowship with God that Adam and Eve had in the Old Testament way back in the beginning of the garden. Every day they walked with God. They had personal fellowship. But up up until then, after they sinned, there was no fellowship. Then God made a way through sacrifice. But only the high priest could go in to have that fellowship. Now Moses experienced that. The greatest prayer man has ever prayed is what Moses prayed when God gave him the Ten Commandments and said, God, show me your glory. God said, no man can see me and live. In his fallen state, we can't see God. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses, because he called Moses his friend. When, when his own brother and sister tried to gossip about him because he'd married a dark-skinned woman, he said, what are you doing? It's not, you, you don't talk about my servant. I talk to Moses like my friend face to face. You don't talk about him. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock here. I'm going to put my hand over. I'm just going to pass by with my back. And Moses saw the back of God, and he lived. And he came down from the mountain, and you know what? His face shone. The Bible says we're going to shine like that one day. Book of Daniel say that says that those that turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Where does that light come from? You know, God created man to reflect his glory, but we lost that glory in sin. And Moses would put a veil over his face so they wouldn't see the glory fading away. But for the most part, access has been denied until Jesus died, and that's why his death is victory. It goes on to say, the earth shook, the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That's why it's victory. He conquered death and sin when he died. Then he rose again to put an exclamation point on it. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this is the Son of God. The Gentiles, the pagans could see what his own people denied. John said he came into his own and his own Received him not. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. His ministry of salvation is complete. We've read in the book of Acts when Stephen dies that Jesus stands up to receive him to come home. He receives his children to come home. That's why we believe as his children. 
Psalm 115, 16, how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. The worst thing that happened to a believer is not death. No, that's the greatest day of your life. As a believer, that's when you begin to really understand what life is all about. Verse 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sin, for all time sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. What is that? Philippians chapter 2. We, I quoted that passage where it says, Jesus came down, he thought it not robbed to be equal with God, took upon him flesh. He was obedient, even in the death of the cross. And one day, that's this day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So even if you reject Christ in this life, one day you're going to bow your knee to him. So the choice is, do you bow your knee now in this life while you breathe? Or do you bow because you're forced and then spend eternity separated from God? He's waiting until... His enemies become his footstool. We have this time in this life with all the trials and the challenges in our time and our place to be faithful. Jesus is waiting. Verse 14, for by one, one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. As a believer, that's where you are today. I know when we look at ourselves, we see the work that God is still working on. And we know that God's not done with us yet. But we hold on to the, the verse that says, faithful is he that calls who will also bring it to pass. That work that he's begun in you, that good work, he will complete it. He's going to complete it one day. But the amazing thing is the way God looks at you the way Father looks at you is you are perfected for all time by that sacrifice. You're sanctified. You're justified. You stand completely holy, set apart for His use. He doesn't see you as a, as a slate that was clean and it's getting kind of dirty and one day He'll finish you. He sees you dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Queen Elizabeth the first, was playing as a child, and I suppose she was kind of rowdy. And one day her matron, the person in charge of her, her nanny, said, don't you understand that one day you're going to be the queen? You need to act like it. And that made a profound difference in that little girl's life because she realized she didn't live up who she was. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes to the Ephesians and he said, we have this one hope, one faith, one baptism, and we need to live up to that as believers. Understanding that God has made us a priesthood of kings unto himself. Your salvation is taken care of if you truly believe in Jesus Christ. But we ought to be living based upon that sacrifice, a life that reflects who we are in this world, that others might see Christ and be drawn to him. 
in verses 15 through 18, we see the great blessings that we have because we belong to Jesus Christ. The first great fellowship, personal fellowship with God. When you receive Jesus Christ, your Savior, and you accepted the payment of his shed blood for your, for your sin, you were cleansed so that the Holy Spirit could come in and live in your life. Personal fellowship. Personal guidance dwelt in by the Holy Spirit. Eternal life now. I think sometimes as believers we think about eternal life beginning the moment we die. And then we'll have eternal life. No, no. John wrote in 1 John 3, Behold, now are you the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what you shall be, but we know that when he appears, you'll be like him. Every believer that has this hope in him purifies himself even as Christ is pure. Now you're the children of God. Now you possess eternal life. Now. And then he goes on to say, because you have new life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. New creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that is new desires, new want to. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit that indwells us testifies to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. Then he says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. You can live your whole life as good as you want to, and God will give you wages and the wages for your life of sin, because as the psalmist said, I'm altogether born in sin. That's the way you don't sin and become a sinner. You were born a sinner, therefore you sin. It's just your nature. The wages of sin is death. But listen to this. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. Have you received it? Do you know him today? Or just know a lot of doctrine and you know a lot of things about Jesus. And so you celebrate Christmas really good and give a lot of, you like the season. Or do you know him? If you know him, you know that your sins are forgiven. He promised in the Old Testament, that great promise, I'm going to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. I'll bury them in the deepest sea. And here's the great promise, God remembers them no more. David the psalmist looked forward, he said, how blessed is the man that the Lord does not account his iniquities to his record. David was looking forward to that day. You live in this day of grace. The opportunity for every individual that received Jesus Christ is to have your sins taken away. You don't have to bear that burden anymore. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 said, Come unto me, all you that are weak and heavy laden. He knew the people he was speaking to in that day, Jewish people, were weak and they were heavy laden. Some had given up. They didn't even go to the temple. What good does it do? I still have the guilt of my sin. 
And Jesus said, no, come to me. You're weak, you're heavy laden. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me. For my burden is light and you will find what? Rest for your soul. That's only in Jesus. It's not in religion. It's not in joining a church. It's not in being baptized or giving gifts. It's by recognizing your sinful condition, admitting that before God, and putting your life in his hands. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose again. Father, we thank you for your gospel, the good news of the gift of the Lamb of God that took our, our sin away, that is the only sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. Lord, as we gather around the table, Lord, I pray that you would convict us of sin left unconfessed, that we might come with clean hands to remember the amazing grace that was provided for us in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice that ends it all, the precious Lamb of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, stir us up to worship and to go from this place to share the good news with those that are hopeless on the outside without you. We pray in your precious name. Amen.